Well, hey there, it's Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast. Right now at Melbourne Heights, we are in a series of sermons called So Loved by God. So last week, we spent our time together thinking about how God feels about the entire world. And this week, we're going to spend our time talking about how we're supposed to feel about the world and everyone in it, too. We're going to do that by continuing to explore the Gospel of John, John's first-hand account of Jesus' life and his ministry, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with someone that was on the lowest rung of the social ladder in ancient Israel. So with that in mind, let's get right into this morning's sermon. So when we came together last Sunday morning, we spent our time talking about what may just be the six most important words in all of the Bible. And there is no question whether these are the most important words in the Bible or not, that these six words most definitely changed the way that we think about the world. And since these words are so important, it's not surprising that these six words come from one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. In John 3.16, we're told, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now, these words may not seem that important to you, And that says a lot about how they've changed the way we view the world. Because a lot of us sitting in this room this morning, we have known these words since before we even started elementary school. We learned these in Sunday school classes and vacation Bible schools and all of these things when we were so small that we don't even remember the first time we heard them. So you might be wondering what makes these six words so important. What makes these six words so world-changing? Well... It's because they tell us about a God that no one could have imagined before Jesus walked this earth. These six words speak of a God that loves the entire world. Not just one person, not just one country, not just one religious group, but a God that loves the whole world. Well, this week, instead of focusing on how these six words change the world, I want to talk about how these six words should be changing us. And to start that conversation this morning, I want to talk about something that has been the bane of the existence of mothers for a long time, and that's the blankie. Now, how many of you moms had a kid who had a blankie that they loved when they were growing up? Tony Campola, who's one of my favorite Christian speakers, authors, communicators, he tells a story about his son, Bart, and he says uh, in this story that Bart had a blanket that he loved so much, and they called it yellow, and if I remember the story correctly, they don't remember why they called it yellow, because the blanket wasn't actually yellow, but that's how kids are sometimes. But he loved this blanket so much that Tony Campola and his wife decided to tear, they had to tear the blanket in two because the child wouldn't sleep without the blanket, and sometimes it got so filthy over the course of the day that they had to have a backup blanket. That's why it's been the bane of so many parents' existence, having to keep up with this blanket no matter how filthy, dirty, torn up, ragged it may be. But when you think in the larger scheme of things about blankets, there are a few things in life that are less cool than a blanket, but there are so many kids that rely on these, no matter how beat up, worn out, run through the world and through the mud and dirt they are, they love their blankets more than anything else in the world. And I'm willing to bet that there are some of you sitting in this room this morning that you may not have had a kid who loved their blankie, but you probably loved your blankie when you were a kid too. So what is it about this blanket 
What is it that makes this so comforting, so fabulous, so important to kids that they love it more than anything else in the world? Well, maybe the world's most famous blanket aficionado can shed a little bit of light on this subject for us. And of course, when I talk about the most famous blanket aficionado in the world, I can only be talking about one individual, Linus Van Pelt, one of the members of Charles Schultz's beloved Peanuts gang. Now, anybody who's ever seen a Peanuts comic strip knows that you almost never see Linus without his blanket and that he loves that blanket more than anything else in the world. In the, the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas movie, he even vows that when he gets older, he's going to turn his little blue blanket into a sports jacket just so he can wear it around all the time. But in one particular story arc inside of the Peanuts comic strip, Linus's older sister, Lucy, takes away his blanket. Why would she do such a horrible thing? Well, we've got some comic strips that we're going to show you this morning. So we'll put the first strip up there and we'll see. This is Linus talking with Charlie Brown, and Charlie Brown can't believe it. She did what? She buried my blanket, Charlie Brown. She said she was going to cure me of this habit once and for all, so she buried my blanket. How in the world am I ever going to find it? Now I know what they mean when they say our future lies in the soil. Lucy stole Linus's blanket because she wanted to break a bad habit. And I'm sure any mother who ever had a kid who loved a blankie couldn't wait to break them of the habit. Eventually, you're just supposed to outgrow this bad habit of relying on a blanket. But as you can already start seeing in this comic strip, it doesn't exactly go over real well with Linus that his blanket has been buried. So we're going to show you another strip just to show you how much impact this makes on Linus. It says, ever since Lucy buried my blanket, I felt sort of dizzy. I can't eat, even eat. Everything tastes sour. I don't seem to be able to catch my breath either. I feel like I'm choking. And then he goes back to his sister. Please tell me where you buried it. He loves this blanket so much. He can barely sleep. He can't eat. He feels like he's choking. He needs this. This poor guy is struggling. He is unable to focus on anything besides his beloved blue blanket. But in spite of his best efforts in this series of comic strips, it looks like Linus's blanket is going to be lost forever. But just when Linus is ready to give up all hope, Snoopy, Charlie Brown's beloved beagle, comes to the rescue by digging up Linus's blanket from its burial ground in the Van Pelt family's backyard. And in what is undoubtedly my all-time favorite Peanuts comic strip, this is how Linus responds to the return of his blanket. He says, my blanket, I got it back. I can't believe it. My good old blanket, for two weeks it's been buried beneath the ground. It's dirty, it's ragged, it's torn up, it's even a little moldy. But it's my blanket. To anybody else in the world, that blanket would not have meant a thing. It was dirty, it was ragged, it was torn up, it was moldy. Most of us would have thrown it away, or we would have rather left it buried in the ground. But not Linus. To Linus, that blanket was his. And that was all that mattered about it. It belonged to him. Sadly, it's not just blankets or other inanimate objects that we treat like they're disposable, like they can be thrown away, like they don't matter if they're dirty, ragged, torn up, and even moldy. We do the exact same thing with people, too. 
we look at some people. We look at some people and we place a whole lot of value on them. We place a lot of value on celebrities, on athletes, on religious leaders, sometimes on politicians, even, and even more people. But with other folks, when we look at them, all that we see is somebody who is dirty, ragged, torn up, maybe even a little bit moldy, and all we want to do with them is we just want to throw them away. We want to get rid of them without giving them a second thought or another opportunity. Now, last week I told you a story about one of those people that we place a lot of value in in this world. That man's name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a member of the most prestigious religious group of his time. He was a part of the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a religious and a political leader inside of the nation of Israel. But he was so much more than that. He was a public figure that was well known by so many inside of his community. He was undoubtedly wealthy, or at the very least wealthier than most other people living in Israel in his day and age. He had worked hard, and he had gained respect. He had risen through the ranks. So Nicodemus was someone that we would have gladly invited to join us for lunch after church services wrapped up on Sunday mornings. And he's the kind of person that most pastors would have done everything, bending over backwards to try to get him to join their church. Nicodemus was the kind of person that we would look at our little children and say, that's who you want to be like when you grow up. But in the story that we're going to be talking about this morning, we're going to find somebody that's on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Nicodemus. So if you will, go ahead and grab your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and as you're finding it, let me just remind you, this book is written by John. John is one of Jesus' closest followers, one of Jesus' disciples, but he's not just any member of the disciples, he's also part of Jesus' inner circle in the disciples. So John knows Jesus as well as anybody in the world, so when he writes these stories, he's writing them from firsthand experience for us. He's telling us what he has seen, what he has heard, what Jesus has told him. So John chapter 4, we're going to hear about Jesus meeting with someone that is far less prestigious than a Pharisee. We're going to find Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman in the story. So let's look at this story together. We'll start reading in John chapter 4, picking up with verse 5. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Now let's press pause right here. Because something important happens in these first two and a half verses here that it's easy for us to overlook. John includes a pretty important detail that we often miss when we read the story. So just in case you missed it the first time around, let me point it out to you. Did you notice what time of day the woman goes out to the well? She goes out to the well about noon. She goes out in the middle of the day. And why does it matter that this woman goes out to the well in the middle of the day? Well, in that culture, when most women would have gone to collect the water from a well, they would have gone at the very beginning of the day. And they would have done that for a couple of reasons. The first reason why they would have gone at the beginning of the day is so that they could have had fresh water inside of their house for the entire day. And if you've ever taken a drink of water from a cup that sat out overnight, you understand how important it is to have fresh water to start the day every day. But the second reason is even more important. 
The second reason why women would have gone out first thing in the morning to collect water is because it, gets, it is significantly cooler at the start of the day than it is in the middle of the day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was tasked with hauling around gallons of water, maybe 10, 20 gallons of water, I don't want to have to lug that around in the middle of a scorching hot day underneath a Middle Eastern sun. I want to go out first thing in the morning when it's cool, maybe before the sun is even finally completely risen into the sky to get that water, get back home, because I just run a little naturally hot anyway. So the fact that this woman went out at noon in the middle of the day instead of first thing in the morning Well, it tells us a lot about who this woman likely is. It tells us from the get-go that she's probably an outcast. Somebody that was looked down on by all of the other women in the community. Someone that would rather face the Middle East, the, the, the hot sun in the middle of the day than to just be around other women who were going to make fun of her, who were going to tease her, who were going to bully her, who were going to try to hold her down. She would rather sacrifice water for a few hours each morning than to face the ostracism of her community. So with that in mind, let's get back into the story. We'll pick up in the second half of verse 7. Jesus said to this woman, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me? a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Now let's press pause here and pay attention to what's happening because that last little statement there is probably the grossest understatement you're going to read in just about the entire Bible. In this section, we find this Samar- that Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman. He asks her for, wa- for some water and she is in complete shock that he, a Jewish man, would talk with her, a Samaritan woman. And not only is she shocked by all of this, when you keep reading through the story, when Jesus' disciples return with that food, they're going to be just as surprised as the woman is that Jesus has been talking with her. But why? Why is this so shocking that Jesus, a Jewish man, would talk with her, a Samaritan woman? Well, there's two reasons. First, Jesus is a male, and the Samaritan woman is obviously a woman, gives it away in her name and everything. And in the ancient Middle Eastern society, as well as many Middle Eastern cultures to this day, men were not allowed to interact with females who they were not directly related to. If you are not a part of their family, a man cannot talk with you, cannot interact with you at all. And the second reason why this is so surprising to the Samaritan woman is that Jesus is Jewish, and she, again, the Samaritan woman is obviously a Samaritan. And like I said, when we get this little parenthetical reference that Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other, this is one of the grossest misunderstatements inside of all of the Bible. Samaritans and Jews did not associate with each other. They hated each other. Probably helps to think about this relationship, this interaction as being a modern-day equivalent to an Israeli and a Palestinian getting together around a well. These things just don't happen. You see, there were severe tensions between these two groups of people, and the Jews firmly believed that they were better than every single Samaritan walking the earth. So when Jesus speaks to this woman, He's violating two accepted social norms. So just keep all of that in mind as we keep reading. We'll pick back up in verse 10. 
This is what John says. John writes, Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gifts and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket and our well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty again and will never need to come here to draw water again. Now, let me remind you, she's going there in the middle of the day just to avoid these crowds, so how much would she have loved to have not had to go back to draw this again? So Jesus says to her, Go. Go and get your husband and come back here. And the woman replied to him, I don't have a husband. You're right to say that you don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. All right, let's hit pause here one more time. And I want you to think about what you just heard. And I want you to think about how you feel right now if you were to bump into somebody that has been married five different times. Now, we live in a world today where second and third marriages are fairly commonplace. But when somebody has been married five times, think somebody like Larry King or Elizabeth Taylor, they're no longer honored and revered by our culture. They become punchlines and the jokes of late-night comedians. Now, rewind 2,000 years to when this story is taking place and imagine how the community would have felt about someone living in their midst that had been married five times. That doesn't even begin to discuss the social stigma of living with someone that you weren't married to in those days. So at this point, it is crystal clear that this woman that Jesus has met at the well is at the bottom of ancient Israel's social standings. She was a woman... She was a Samaritan, she had been married multiple times, and she was living with someone that she wasn't married to now. For everything that Nicodemus was in last week's story, a prestigious person, a political, a religious leader, someone to be emulated and admired, this Samaritan woman wasn't. She was the lowest of the low, an outcast in every sense of the word. Now let's finish looking at her story. This time we're going to pick up in verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am. I am the one who speaks with you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived, and they were shocked to see him talking with this woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar, went into the city, and she said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything that I've done. Could he be the Messiah? As we've read through the story, we've heard about someone who is dirty, ragged, torn up, and even a little moldy. We've heard the story of someone that most of us would have thrown away without a second thought, someone that we would have preferred 
spending as little a time with as we possibly could. We would rather be with somebody more like us, somebody a lot more like Nicodemus, and a lot less like the Samaritan woman. But remember what we talked about last week. Remember those six little words that changed the world. For God so loves the world. For God so loves the world. You see, we may want absolutely nothing to do with a person like this Samaritan woman at the well. But not Jesus. Jesus sits with this woman. Jesus talks with this woman. And he spends a whole lot longer talking with this woman than he spent talking with Nicodemus in last week's story. And not only do they talk, they talk about important things. They talk about God. They share a deep conversation about faith together. And all of this in spite of the fact that this Samaritan woman is a nobody. Literally, she is a nameless person inside of the crowded stories of Jesus' life. But Jesus didn't see this woman like the world saw her. Jesus didn't see this woman the same way that the world saw her. He didn't see her gender. He didn't see her marital status. He didn't see her racial background. He saw her. He saw a person created in the image of God. He saw someone with infinite value and worth. He saw a child of God who is so loved by God. And if you want to be changed by the good news that God so loves the world, then you have to see that Samaritan woman is part of that world that God so loves too. This Samaritan woman is one of the people that God so loves. So it doesn't matter if she's dirty, ragged, torn up, and moldy. All that matters is that she is so loved by God. But here's my question for you this morning. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where what we talk about in church can make a difference in the way that we live our lives outside of the church. How do you see this woman? When you read the story, when you think about everything, all the strikes that the Samaritan woman has against her, how do you see her? How do you really see her? And don't just give me that knee-jerk Sunday school reaction to the question. I mean, we're all sitting here in church, so we all know how we're supposed to feel about this woman. We all know that we're supposed to see her the same way that Jesus sees her, that we're supposed to love her the same way that Jesus does. But do you really? Do you really see this woman the same way that Jesus does? Do you really see her as a child of God? Do you really see her as someone who is so loved by God? Now here's how you can really figure out your answer to this question. Instead of thinking about the story of the woman at the well, think about the people in the world right now that you treat like they're less than you. Think about the people in this world right now that you treat like they are less than you. Because that's what everybody in the world did to the Samaritan woman at the well besides Jesus. Now, maybe you treat people like they're less than you because of their gender because of the color of their skin, because of their religion, because of where they grew up, because of their job. Maybe you you treat people like they're less than you for all of those reasons and more. Think about it. Do you really treat 
the waiter or waitress when you go out to lunch like they are a child of God? Do you really treat the receptionist when you walk into your doctor's office, your dentist's office, or wherever you may go like they are a child of God? Do you really treat the sales clerk who comes up and just wants to check in and see how you're doing like they are a child of God, or do you treat them like an annoyance? Do you treat the lady that's working down at the DMV like she's a child of God? Do you treat? Who do you miss? Who do you treat like they are less than you? Less than being so loved by God? Now here's the truth. There is somebody in your life right now that you treat like they are less than you. There is. Whether you want to admit it and realize it and say it for yourself, there is somebody in your life right now like you treat like they matter less than you. Like their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions, whatever it is about them, you treat them like it doesn't matter because they are less important than you. But none of us, and hear me, None of us are really following Jesus if we don't believe that he so loves everyone else as much as he loves us. If you think that Jesus loves you more than anyone else, you're not really following Jesus. So we need to see how we treat the same way that everyone else in the world treated this Samaritan woman at the well. And we need to change. And we need to know that there is no one who is less than us. There are only people who are so loved by God. And everyone that we meet, everyone that we meet deserves no less than our love, too. Let's pray together. God, as we gather in this place this morning... We have spent time listening to what is a familiar story for many of us. The story of this woman at the well. But God, I'm afraid that this story is so familiar to us that we stop listening to it. We don't realize how scandalous it is that Jesus, when he was walking this earth, met and he talked with this Samaritan woman, this person who was at the bottom rung of the social standings in ancient Israel. Everyone else would have looked at this woman and thought that there were, Jesus had no business talking to her. But he loved her, God. Now, God, every one of us sitting in this room right now, there's somebody in our lives that we feel like we have no business interacting with. They are just too low. They don't matter. They're less important than we are. God, change that thinking. Change that thinking. Change our hearts. Help us to be your presence in this world. Because, God, you so love the whole world. Not just us. Not just me. Not just people like me. You love the whole world. So, God, keep breaking my heart. Keep challenging all of us to love the world, too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey there, it's Adam again, and thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast. We hope that this week's sermon has challenged you to do a better job of loving the world that God so loves. Now, next week, we're going to be wrapping up this series of sermons, and we're going to spend our time together talking about how we can actually do that, how we can actually love the world that God so loves 
even better. So I encourage you to tune back in next Tuesday morning when the next episode of this podcast drops. But before we go, let me ask you to do a couple of quick things for me. First, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I know there are a ton of podcasts that are out there, and if you're anything like me, you don't really listen to the ones that you don't subscribe to. So just hit that button, and when next week's episode drops, it'll be sent straight into your favorite podcasting app. And while we're talking about your favorite podcasting app, let me encourage you to leave us a review and a rating inside of whatever app it is that you listen to this podcast through. Your reviews mean a whole lot to us, and they really can help spread the word about this podcast and help share this message with other folks who need to hear it too. So once again, thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast. I'm praying for you this week. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Tuesday.